Okay, gotcha. All right. Hey, uh, welcome once again. We have been doing a series the last few weeks on vineyard values. This is a, a vineyard church, if you didn't know. We are part of a larger group of churches, and it's, it's an interesting thing. We're called the Vineyard Community of Churches. And people ask me sometimes, are you non-denominational? And technically, yes, we are non-denominational. We have chosen to uh, officially, legally label ourselves as a community of churches rather than a denomination. And that means a whole bunch of things. We don't need to go into all of those tonight. But, but um, I just felt like I would share with you that it, we are part of a larger group of churches that have a common value system. And over the last uh, several months, the sort of uh, national leadership of the Vineyard Movement has uh, sort of restated some of those things that we value. We haven't changed the values. It wasn't like a wholesale switch or anything like that. They just sort of restated them. And so I thought it would be a great opportunity for us as a local expression of the Vineyard to review those and to kind of rethink who we are, what we're about, what we're for. So that's really what, what this series has been and, and is. And, and um, so tonight we're in the fourth uh, of the five values. And, and this one tonight is in some ways possibly the most challenging. And the most challenging, not so much to understand. I think it's pretty easy to understand. But challenging to, to really actually embrace and begin to, to actually value it. And, and I think we realize that uh, a value is only a value if it's really valuable, right? Do you follow me on that? H- has anybody ever had in your life um, a stated value, something you said you, you, were, you valued or you believed in, but in all honesty, your life didn't truly reflect that. Anybody? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you do. Several years ago, uh, my position as I was, before I was here uh, starting this church, I was youth pastor at the Vineyard in Anaheim, California. And Anaheim at that time was sort of the, um, I don't know what the correct term is, the headquarters for the Vineyard movement. And as the youth pastor there, that position gave me some visibility in the movement and and some influence in the movement. And so I was asked to become the head of our National Youth Task Force, which sounds really important and big, and it it, it really wasn't. But but with that, what happened is this, that I was given the opportunity to be part of that national leadership team, which meant that two or three times a year I would have to go to a meeting, typically several days long, and that I, would, I was also asked to come and speak at conferences uh, fairly regularly, several times a year. Those were usually two, three, four, five days long. I also developed some training material that I used to help young youth pastors get started in their ministry, and I would go out several times a year into the different regions of the country and uh, work with youth pastor, pastors, training them. And uh, at that time... Uh, we had a stated value, my wife and I in our, in our marriage, uh, that our family was first, that, that our family came before ministry. Uh, and at the time that I was doing a lot of work with the National Youth Task Force, my kids, most of whom are here this evening, 
We're, we're at an age when really they needed me to be home and be around. And I was not. I was gone a lot. And so even though we had a value that said our family was first, our family was before ministry, my life wasn't reflecting that. And um, my kids were gracious in helping me to realize that. And, uh, and, you know, and when they did, and when I did realize it, uh, I immediately resigned that position and decided to limit my travel. And so since then, I actually, most of you know that I, I now work in, in our missions department, and I go to Nicaragua. Some of you have been with me a couple times a year. But that's really all I do. I, I don't travel much more than that. I've made a commitment, to, to be, even though the kids are older, uh, to, to be home and, and to really make my priorities my family and this church and to not do much else outside of that. Um, but but I, I shared that story with you simply to say that sometimes we have things in our life that we say are of value to us, but we, re, we really don't live up to that. And, and those are, those are self-imposed. They're not something that somebody else put on us that we're not living up to. They're things that we, that we say we value ourselves, but really we don't. So, tonight what I want to talk about, the fourth value in this list of five um, vineyard values, is, is called reconciling community. And if we could, I'd like to just take a moment and pray, and then uh, I, I want to begin by reading the description of what reconciling community is from the uh, Vineyard USA website. But first, if you would just pray with me. Lord, we, we love you, and we, we, uh, we want to reflect your glory as we sang tonight in our worship in every aspect of our lives. And, and we want to be um, integrous in those things that we say are important. Uh, if we love you and follow you and serve you, then we really want to love you and follow you and serve you. So open our hearts tonight and allow us to receive from your word and to learn and grow uh, as your people, your children, your disciples. Amen. This again, and I would encourage you, if you have not, to look at the Vineyard USA website. It's just vineyardusa.org. Read the, the lists of values and um, the articles describing them that go with them. But I wanted to share this description with you. It says, Jesus is reconciling people to God, to each other, and to the entire creation. He breaks down divisions between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. Therefore, vineyard churches are committed to being communities of healing, engaged in the work of reconciliation wherever sin and evil hold sway. We also seek to be diverse communities of hope that realize the power of the cross to reconcile what has been separated by sin. This requires that we move beyond our personal preferences and engage those whom we perceive to be unlike us. We must actively work to break down barriers of race, culture, gender, social class, and ethnicity. What the uh, description that we just read is, is saying, and I want to reflect back for, for those of you that were here on the first couple weeks when we talked about the value of kingdom theology, and we've talked a lot about the kingdom of God. And what this description is saying is that the, the best reflection of the kingdom of God in the world today is a community that is diverse. The best reflection of the kingdom of God in the world today is a community that is diverse, that's diverse of, of person, 
different kinds of people, diverse of tradition, diverse of experience, that we would come together with different traditions, different experiences, different histories, and that we would share those things, and that those differences would actually enrich one another and make our lives fuller. That, that, that community, that reflection of the kingdom of God would be comprised of people who are willing to, to put aside their assumptions about one another and instead extend their arms in welcome rather than judgment. That, that really is the reflection of the ideal kingdom of God. What does the kingdom of God looks like, look like? It looks like that. Dr. Martin Luther King once said that the church is the most segregated institution in America. I want to read to you the actual quote. The, the picture of Dr. King there is actually at a, at a rally, but this quote wasn't spoken in a, in a speech. It actually was in an interview that he conducted after one of his speeches. And um, the uh, reporter interviewed him, and in the context of that interview, these are the things that uh, Martin Luther King said. We must face the fact that in America, the church is still the most segregated major institution in America. At 11 o'clock on Sunday morning when we stand and sing and Christ has no east or west. We stand at the most segregated hour in this nation. And that is tragic. Um, Dr. King said that in 1963. So we are approaching, coming up upon the 50-year mark of that statement. And my question is, in 50 years, in half a century... Have we changed much? Are things any different than they were 50 years ago? Have we progressed beyond that point in in the church in America today? Some of you might recall about three years ago, there were some students at George Fox University, which is not only uh, local here in our community, but is a um, vocally, outspokenly Christian institution. And some students there were suspended and reprimanded for, during the last presidential election, hanging a likeness of then-Senator Barack Obama from a tree in the center of campus with a placard uh, pinned to his chest saying, Act 6, Reject. And Act 6, it was a program on the Fox campus for racial reconciliation. Now, I don't think those students necessarily reflect the heart of everyone in the church in America today. But that act certainly says to me that all is not well. That in the 50 years since Dr. King made that statement, that we maybe haven't progressed all that much, and that there still is... Uh, some need for greater reconciliation in the the heart of the Church of America. I would say this with certainty, that that does not reflect the image that the Apostle John saw in Revelation uh, when he pictured the kingdom of God in Revelation 7. Remember that John has an image of heaven and the perfection of what God's heart is for His people. And he says, after this, I looked, 
there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So you see, that's the kingdom ideal. When we pray, and we pray it often, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying for. We've talked about the kingdom of God being that, that, that future thing, that, that one day ideal where all will be right as God intended it to be. And when we pray, let your kingdom come, we're actually asking for a little bit of that future reality to come into our present reality today. We know that one day every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation will stand and worship God together. And what we're praying and asking for is, God, could you do, would you do just a little bit of that now in our midst? Would you cause people to worship together with no division, no prejudice, no fear of judgment in their hearts? The kingdom ideal really is a church that says, Everyone welcome, come as you are. We say that here often, don't we? We've had it on various pieces of uh, information, our welcome card at different times. It said, everyone welcome, come as you are. Do we mean that? Do we mean that? I think it should say not only everyone welcome, come as you are, but you'll be loved when you come as you are. Come as you are and you'll be loved. Bring your brokenness. Bring your weakness. Bring your baggage. Bring whatever you have. And we'll love you anyway. That, to me, is the kingdom of God represented in our life today. Clearly, I think that racial barriers are visible. They're, they're, They're big, and we see them. They are obstacles to the kingdom of God. But I think there are there are other barriers that exist in addition to that of race. And I want to try to address that tonight a little bit. And to do that, I want to look at a passage that, again, is familiar to us and that we have looked at um, uh, a little bit in in recent weeks. A few weeks ago, I I mentioned in in an earlier sermon uh, the Samaritan woman that Jesus encountered at the well in John chapter 4. And I want to look tonight at that same passage with a little more detail um, but, but first, I just want us to, to remember something. Even last week, we talked about the Good Samaritan. Uh, and it's interesting to me how often Samaritans pop up in, in the life and teaching of Jesus. And you'll recall, I shared with you last week, that there was considerable animosity between the Jews and Samaritans. And, and once again, I would just say it's, it's, it's not uh, by, by chance that, that Jesus references or encounters Samaritans fairly regularly. He was making a point. Jesus was making a point. The point was that the people that may be the hardest for you to love are the ones I want you to reach out to the most. That's what he was saying. Let's um, go ahead and look at the text. It's, it's Again, it's John chapter 4. And I'm going to look at it bit by bit and talk about it if you want to read a different translation with me, you can. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, 
near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. I want to show you a little, I, I like maps. I want to show you a little map. I don't know how well you guys can see that, but the, the red arrow at the top there is Galilee. The red arrow at the bottom is Judea. And where Jesus was going was from Judea to Galilee. We learned somewhere back in, I don't know, middle school math, I think, that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And so it would make all the sense in the world for Jesus to walk through Samaria to get from Judea to Galilee. Although that was not the commonly taken route. Most people would not have done what Jesus did and walked through Samaria. They would have actually walked around Samaria, gone uh, through Perea to get to Galilee, which would have not only been considerably longer journey, but caused them to have to cross the Jordan River twice on their way. And the reason that they would have taken that longer trip was to avoid Samaria altogether. The animosity between these two groups was so much so that that the Jews would not have wanted to even uh, go through this land and take any chance encounter that they might have to stop and talk to a Samaritan along the way. So my point in that is simply this, that Jesus is intentional in doing this. Jesus is not ignorant or naive of the cultural reality that was he was living in. He was very aware. And, and, and it was with a, a full intent that he said, I'm going to walk right through the middle of Samaria. I don't think it was by chance that he sat down and had this encounter. I, I think it was by design that he did everything he did. And so I, I might say to us that an awareness of cultural barriers and a willingness to cross those barriers is a good place to start. Are, are we aware, first of all, of the cultural barriers that exist in our world today? And are we willing to cross those barriers? Many of you know that my lovely wife, who is not here this evening, is a real estate broker. And her work in real estate allows her the opportunity to interact with a lot of different people, all different kinds of people. And uh, one of the clients that she has worked with in the past couple of years is a gay couple who she spent a considerable amount of time with in helping them to relocate and, and purchase a new home. And in the process of that, got to know them quite well, and they got to know her quite well. And um, not only knew that Donna is a Christian, but that she was, in fact, married to a pastor. And yet they never felt judged or looked down upon or condemned in any way in their exchanges with her. And, and I would say, I've, I've talked before about you know living our life outside of here as Christians, and I, I think my wife is one of the people I know that does that as well as anybody. So we, I had opportunity to meet these guys one day. We, we had to go by to drop the keys off, I think, or something, and got to shake hands and say hello. And, and, and later on, just because of the, they, they really were blessed at how, how much Donna helped her and um, invited us over to share a meal, and we did. We went over and, and, and had a wonderful afternoon just hanging out, talking about life and about God. One of these guys is an artist, and he had an art show at a gallery in town and invited us to come. And we went and 
saw his art, and I told him, it's fantastic. He does tremendous watercolors, and I told him I'd love to have one in my house if I could afford it. Um, they're, they're a little pricey. Um, but my point is simply that both Don and I are well aware of the cultural barrier that existed there and the potential for these gentlemen to feel criticized, condemned, judged by us. But we intentionally crossed that barrier and said, no, we want to extend the welcome of the kingdom and love you in the name of Jesus, regardless of who you are. And we've been able to maintain some sense of relationship with them. So um, let's continue in our story. Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, first of all, let me say that, that um, John, in his uh, documentation here, is being very kind when he says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's really the nicest way he could have said that. I, I would have probably been inclined to write something to the effect of, They hated each other. But he, he is, he's being gentle here in his description, saying that Jews do not associate in his parenthetical comments there. Uh, second thing I want to point out is this, that remember it's, it's noon, it's midday, when Jesus sits down at the well and this lady comes out to draw water. Now, that would not have been the normal time that women would have gone to the well to draw water. That normally would take place early in the morning. And there are a number of reasons for that. One reason is that, obviously, to do any of the other things that you very likely have to do throughout the course of the day, you need that water, right? So whether you're going to prepare food or clean or whatever, you need the water. So you go get the water first so you can do the other stuff later. Second reason is, of course, that in the middle of the day, it's very hot. And early in the morning, it's cool. So you do the hard work and go get that in the sun while it's cooler before it gets hot. The third reason, though, is that there was really a a social dynamic to going to the well to draw the water. And it was sort of a gathering place, and the ladies of the town would go there with their, with their jars or their jugs or whatever they gathered their water in, and they could help one another out and sort of have a little chit-chat while they're there, right? And that's what ladies do, right? Isn't that what they do? So they do. Come on. Let's just take a survey, guys. How, how, how many of your wives burn up cell phone batteries at double the rate that you do? They all do. They just like to talk. That's not, a, that's not a criticism or judgment. It's just a reality, okay? Um, so the gals would go out to the well in the morning and talk. Now, it's several hours later, noon, at a time when this woman would have thought, hoped, believed that there would be no one at the well. She intentionally was going at a time when she didn't have to interact with her neighbors and, and, and chat up with them. Uh, she was trying to sort of, if you would, sneak in to get the water and out without having to, to go through all that rigmarole. Uh, and so she's approaching and sees not, you know, as a guy there, oh, bad. Oh, and a Jewish guy, worse. Um, but she's, she's already there, so she goes to get her water and engages in conversation with him. Now, uh, she was doing this because she had been uh, really stigmatized and marginalized by her neighbors, and we'll, we'll learn about why in, in just a moment. Um, but for now, well, let's just say she was an outcast of sorts. She, she was one who, who was, was not only experiencing the breach between cultures, uh, the Jews and the Samaritans, but was also experiencing a breach in relationship between her own people, her own neighbors, her own community. She had been ostracized from them as well. 
So when Jesus begins to engage her in conversation, um, he is intentionally here breaking down multiple barriers. There, there is the, the racial or ethnic barrier, first of all. And, and with that, let me say, there's, there's also a religious barrier. And I was thinking about this quite a bit today. You, you, know, you know, the cultures, the Jews and Samaritans represented two different faiths as well. And, and that's somewhat true still, not as much, but somewhat true in our society today. If we walked into a public place, or, or let's just say you're sitting in Starbucks, like some of us might do, and a Middle Eastern person walked in the door, would the first thing you think of be, oh, I wonder if that guy's a Christian? No, probably not. Probably most of us would think he, he's probably Muslim. So there, there is, there's some... Uh, you know, sort of religious division that takes place along with that ethnic division as well. Well, Jesus was breaking down both of those barriers as well as a gender barrier. There would have been a, you know, we talked about before, uh, all the reason in the world for a man not to be talking to a woman in public. So there are those barriers, but then I I think there are some others that are maybe uh, a little more subtle. There would have also been sort of a, what I would call a class barrier or a socioeconomic kind of barrier between these, these people. We'll, we'll find out in a, in a moment that this, this woman is somebody who's um, sort of looked down upon in her community. She's not really a good person. And I think Jesus broke a barrier there by saying, others may not want to associate with her, but all the more reason for me to. On top of that, there's the reality that he is uh, a rabbi, a teacher, a pastor, a man of faith. And this is a woman of bad reputation. What if you walked into that same Starbucks and there was a guy there who you happened to know as a pastor in the community? And he was sitting having coffee with a woman that you also happened to know was a prostitute in that community. Now, how you know she's a prostitute, I'm not sure. But let's just say you did. What would you think about that? Should he be here talking to her? There were were multiple levels of barriers that Jesus breached when he engaged her in conversation. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, I love this. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation like this, but it's really two conversations happening at once. Okay? On one side, we're talking about water. There's a well here. We've come here to get water. That's what we're doing. And Jesus starts talking about this living water and being able to, to draw from that well and not have to come back for water and never thirst again. And she's thinking on a very practical level, wow, that would be awesome. What a great deal. If I don't have to come back and get water every day, I'll take that. 
So she's not quite tracking yet. She's thinking, I never heard of this before, but hey, I'm open. On another level altogether, Jesus is offering her something much deeper than that, isn't he? He's offering her life and forgiveness and acceptance and, and, and welcome and healing and wholeness. He, he's offering her the same thing he offers us. You ever feel a little dry? A little thirsty? Ever feel like you're wandering through the desert and can't find your way out? The invitation still stands. The living water is still available. The offer is still good. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Do you ever wonder why she was honest with Jesus right there? He says, go call your husband and come back. Well, there's any number of things she could have done. She could have said, okay, I will, and then just ditched, right? Easy, easy way out. She could have said, oh, my, my husband's away on business, and so he's not available right now. She could have said, oh, okay, and gone and got the guy she's living with and brought him back. Any one of those would have been acceptable. But she didn't do any of those things. She actually was honest with Jesus. And, and, and here's why I think she was honest with Jesus, because I think she already sensed something different about him. Do you know when you're in the presence of someone who doesn't judge you, you can feel that, can't you? Can't you feel it when there's, you're with somebody who is genuine and sincere and, and really isn't critical and judgmental towards you? I can. And I think she felt that. I think she sensed something in Jesus that was different. And, and I think at this point, she actually welcomed the conversation. Now, she didn't know that things were about to unravel into a Jerry Springer episode, but I think she was welcoming more conversation and she wanted to know more about who Jesus was and what he meant and and what he had to offer. She felt that sense of acceptance from him. There was, you know, something in her. She doesn't know yet what this living water he's talking about is, but there's something in her spirit that says, whatever that is, I want that. Hello, Johnny. So, can can we as a people as a church, as an expression of God's kingdom in the world today, can we convey that same sense of welcome to people around us? Can we be so filled with the Spirit of God that we encounter people and they feel that sense of acceptance rather than a sense of criticism and judgment? She says, I see you're a prophet. She recognizes he's a man of faith, a man of religion. And you think on one level maybe she's just waiting for the hammer to drop. Do you ever find yourself embarrassed to say you're a Christian because of what people might think about you? Anybody? Can we overcome that by being so full of the Spirit of God that there's, a, there's just that sense of acceptance that oozes out of us the way that it did out of Jesus? Can we come to a place where the most marginalized, the most left out, the most neglected people that we might possibly chance to encounter 
would feel that sense of welcome from us. Jesus here reveals the secrets of her heart. That's what he did. He told her things about her that he clearly didn't know. And when he does that, the conversation takes a little shift in direction, and she begins to talk about religion, doesn't she? Sir, I, I, I see you're a prophet. Well, you know, I, you, we worship here, but your people worship there. And she begins to talk about religion and really opens the door to a conversation about God with Jesus. And he follows suit. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. What Jesus describes to her there really is the kingdom of God. What he describes is the scene from Revelation 7. He says, in the past, you worshipped here, we worshipped here, but the day will come when in the spirit of reconciliation, man will be restored to God. Man will be restored to man. Boundaries will be broken. Barriers will come down. And we all will stand together before the throne of God, worshiping in spirit and in truth. Now the, uh, you know, one exchange, a few minutes, was transformational for her life. And And I would just encourage us in that. A simple conversation with someone can potentially change the course of their life if we have that heart of welcome. Just a thought. But it not only transformed her life, I think there was, uh, there was much, much more that, that happened with her. And I want to read the next little passage. Just then his disciples returned. They were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? I love the disciples, you know, they, they, they would have had those questions in their heart, but they learn quickly, they're hanging around Jesus, and they go, just don't, don't, don't ask. Just, what, 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 just go with the flow, whatever Jesus is doing, just go with that, don't. Um, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. She, uh, she immediately, her life was so visibly different. She goes to her friends and she says, hey, come and meet this guy who told me everything I, I've ever done. Well, now, the things that Jesus said weren't necessarily, um, you know, great things she had done, right? So I think even though it's not spoken here, the implication is who told me everything I'd ever done but didn't judge me, didn't condemn me, didn't criticize me. She would not have been in such a rush to go share this story with her friends if she didn't feel that. But she felt that so strongly. She said, you, you have to come and meet this guy as well. It doesn't matter where you've been, what has happened in your life. It doesn't matter what you've done up to now. Come and meet this guy because he will love you anyway. 
That's really what she's saying here. The, the transformation in her life was so profound, she could not resist going and telling others about what had happened to her. And I want to read one more passage from this section. Just a few verses down, it says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So in conclusion, the, the willingness of Jesus to cross those, those barriers, the, the willingness of Jesus to overstep the cultural boundaries led to this woman being reconciled to God, to her being reconciled to her community, to those that had pushed her out, and ultimately led to many of them then also being reconciled to God. And that's what the value in the vineyard of reconciling communities is about. It's about that. It's about accepting and loving others and breaking down those walls and barriers and being willing to love in the name of Jesus in such a way that people will be reconciled to God and to one another in His name and in His power and in His love. I want to close with this. And um, Jess, if you want to come on back up, we'll have some worship and some prayer. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And he talks about this very thing. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. All right, why don't we stand? Hey, as always, we want to close with just a minute or two to pray. And, you know, I would just say this tonight. If... um, If you're in a place where you are aware that you need to be reconciled to God, I I would invite you to just invite him into your heart and, and, and allow him to begin to do that. If you're in a place where you know that maybe there's been some barriers that you've built up in your own heart and life against others, some judgments, some criticisms, some condemnation that really isn't the heart of God. I'd encourage you to lay that before him tonight and let go of it. The desire of my heart is that we would be a people like that. That would welcome and love the way that Jesus welcomed and loved even those who might be different from us. So Lord, let your spirit come upon us now. Give us the spirit of reconciliation. Cause us to become the